Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. Do you try to manage your own life by managing the people around you? In today's lesson, Nate explores the coping mechanism commonly called codependency. And now, here's Nate Larkin. All right. Well, this morning we're going to take a little break from our exploration of the 12 steps, a slight detour for the sake of the non-addicts in the room, and we're going to talk about codependency, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, all right, there you go. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's that old joke. A codependent is somebody who wakes up in the morning, turns to his mate and says, good morning, how am I? <laughs> right, right. You're codependent if you want to like something on Facebook, but first you check to see who else has liked it, right? Or if you get kicked off jury duty because you keep insisting you're the guilty one. Uh, how about that weather out there? Isn't it just gorgeous? The weather is perfect here uh, the, first weekend, uh, the first weekend in May. The greens are as green as they're going to be this year. The sky is blue. It's a, it's a taste of Eden out there. I loved my walk this morning, and I try not to project and think too far ahead about how hot it's going to be a month from now and just enjoy this weather. But, you know, as nice as it is out there today, this is only just a shadow of what it was must have been like in the Garden of Eden. Because in addition to all that natural beauty that Adam and Eve got to enjoy every day, they also lived in perfect relationship. They had a perfect relationship with each other. They walked in the light every day, not a stitch of clothing on, nothing to hide from each other, no secrets. Beautiful, blessed, and Every day they took a walk with God. They had perfect fellowship with Him. And then here's the interesting thing. You know, we Christians have this crazy idea that God is actually three in one. We see it all the way back in the very beginning of the story in Genesis where God says, let us make man in our image. And so we, we do believe that God is one and yet three, that there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, and they are distinct, completely distinct individuals, and yet they are completely connected and together. The Father never loses his identity to the Son or the Son to the Spirit, or they maintain their individuality, and yet they are in perfect relationship. And Adam and Eve kind of had that thing going with God in those walks in the garden. And they kind of had a taste of it themselves. Adam never lost his identity to Eve. Eve never lost her identity to Adam. And yet the two had become one flesh without losing their personal identity. And then came the fall. And the relationship gets ruptured. They don't have that daily walk with God any, anymore. And Something goes haywire in their relationship with each other. They, they, they have to get dressed. They've got to hide from each other. They, and they begin to try to anticipate each other and manage each other. And It's still good, 
but it's not perfect anymore. And it hasn't been perfect since. The closest you and I ever came to the garden were those first few months of life, well, before birth. You know, for those first nine months or so, you were completely a part of another person. Complete. What she ate, you ate. What she felt, you felt. It was safe. It was warm. As you were forming, you were part of someone else. Then come (laughs) the disastrous day when you were ejected into this world. But still, then, if things went according to plan, if there wasn't some disruption in the natural order, there was some bonding that took place during those first few days and weeks and months. You felt... You reconnected, so connected that, again, if things went as planned, if there wasn't a very early disruption, you identified so closely with your parents that for those first few years as a child, you were them. You looked to them to define you. So I was, uh, I, I mean, I looked to my parents to find out who I am and what I think. So I would say things like, are, as I got older, are we Democrats or Republicans? I just want to know. And I am what they say I am. I became a Christian early on because we were Christians. That's childhood. And I'm a dependent. But I'm not destined to be a dependent for my entire life. I, I'm going to have to find my individuality, so along comes all the chaos of adolescence, and now I've got to separate from my parents. Now that's traumatic for me, it's traumatic for them. Especially if my parents have become, as sometimes happens, also dependent upon me. Because somehow I'm meeting their needs. And it's very, very important that they keep me dependent, and they keep defining me. And if that's the case, then it's really tough. It's tough on me, it's tough on them. I start to push away. I begin to identify maybe with peers. I start to experiment with my own opinions. I start to push away. If they hold, I push harder. So it's never easy. Sometimes it's tougher than other times as I establish my individuality. The prize of adolescence is independence. The price, the awful price, is loneliness. Because if, after I've made that transition, I've now defined myself separate from my parents, I've erected my ego boundaries, I'm now my own person, but I lost that connection. Now I'm lonely. So I try to connect with other people, and I do that through adolescence, right? So I connect with friends, I join groups, I I have my first romances, maybe. And if I'm lucky, I experience that phenomenon of falling in love, where this lonely part of me here, you know, finally my own person, but behind my own ego boundaries, looking over the wall, I see somebody else who I identify with. And suddenly I see my cosmic twin, right? Here's somebody who's going to understand me. The ego boundaries collapse. I have found this perfect person. We connect. We practically merge. (laughs) It's fantastic. But we're broken, aren't we? 
And then there comes the day when this person doesn't anticipate or understand my needs or doesn't meet my expectations. And, and I find that I have to defend myself. Or I have got to adapt in order not to lose this relationship, which means everything. So maybe now I've just got to, I've just got to accept an indignity I wouldn't normally accept. I've got to do something I wouldn't normally do. I've got to pretend to feel something I don't really feel. Or perhaps I've got to try to just manage this person back into my expectation of what they should be. And it gets especially hairy if the person I'm in love with is an addict. Now I understand that um, I've got an enemy. I've got a rival in this other love, this thing, whatever it is. And so I then can begin to try to push, help, carry, <laughs> somehow get this person through the addiction so that we can be back together. And I can take responsibility, more responsibility than is rightfully mine, more weight than I can possibly carry in a way to help this addict. And paradoxically, my help can actually hurt my attempt to make somebody see something or do something can actually make it harder for them ever to see it or ever to do it. And that's what today we call codependency. Codependency is not a word you'll find in the Bible. It's not, by the way, a sin. It's not listed in any of the sins in the Bible. You're not going to find it there in a catalog. I see codependency very much as, as, as woundedness in our on our adaptations. It's part of our brokenness. And I've come to understand that if you scratch an addict, you find a codependent. Because addicts are um, as focused on others as others are focused on them. Because an addict lives in a self-created reality. She's doing his best to maintain and to try to get those around him to buy into and support. And if they won't, then he'll usually, subtly, do his best to enforce it by means of power and control. Seldom overt. That kind of, that kind of uh, force, that kind of, uh, yeah, that, that power and control is exerted usually in very seemingly innocuous ways through withdrawal or um, sarcasm or perhaps not anger or rage but just kind of a prickliness a way to nudge people back in line to get them to buckle under to buy in let me let me give you an example of this kind of relationship gone sideways. I'm going to take you to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. This is the story of Abigail and Nabal. Let me set it up for you. Saul is king of Israel. Israel has its first king. He's not a very good king. In fact, God makes the decision that uh, he's going to anoint another, and he sends the prophet Samuel to the home of Jesse and identifies Jesse's youngest son as the king. So Samuel anoints David as king. 
Then comes the big day when he kills Goliath and comes to Saul's attention and the attention of all of Israel. Saul, very pragmatic politician, sees this guy as a potential rival. The best place to have him is where he can see him. So he invites David to come to his house. Come live with me. I'm going to keep an eye on you. He would really like to see David killed. So he puts him in his army and sends him out to fight the Philistines. The Philistines are an ever-present threat. Well, David goes out and he wins every battle. And in the process, wins the affection of the people. He becomes kind of a folk hero. They love, everybody loves David. Now they're not talking about Saul anymore. They're talking about David, which only ticks Saul off more. Saul's got to find a way to get David closer so he can control him. He says, hey, why don't you marry my daughter? I'll be your father-in-law. David says, you know what? I, I'm not worthy to be the father-in-law of the king. and I got no money to pay a dowry. And, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'll just serve you. So Saul marries off his daughter. But Saul has another daughter who develops a huge crush on David. Her name's Michael. She just thinks David's the bomb. So Saul tries it again. He says, you know, Michael, she really likes you. Why don't you marry Michael? And uh, turns out David really likes Michael, too. They've got something going. David says, you yeah, know, that sounds good, but I don't have anything for a, di- a dowry. I can't, you know, I have to pay a dowry. I don't have one. I'm up. Saul says, I'll tell you what. Here's, here's the deal. Bring me the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. That's kind of a Hebrew version of, of scalping, right? Uh, bring me, okay, you're going to bring me a hundred scalps. I'm, every guy has one, you bring me a hundred, I know you've killed a hundred guys, right? So uh, David says, uh, you know, okay. Saul, meanwhile, he's thinking, he's not going to survive this. The Philistines will eliminate him for me. That's, that's his whole deal. Well, David, David comes back not with a hundred, but with two hundred. So Saul marries off his daughter to Michael. But his, his anger at David just grows and grows. Uh, he can't sleep. And David, who in addition to being a great warrior, also happens to be a fantastic musician. I mean, <laughs> David will come in and play the harp for him so he can fall asleep. When he wakes up, makes Saul matter. Uh, and so a couple times, he, in, a, in fits of anger, he throws a javelin at David, which David dodges. And, Meanwhile, David's best friend is Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, which makes Saul even madder. And it's Jonathan who warns David one day, my father's vowed to kill you. You better not come back to the palace. He's going to kill you. And David runs for his life. Well, it turns out a lot of other people come to join him. And uh, before you know it, he's got 600 guys with him out in the hills, in the cave at Angede, and out in the countryside. And, and some of them are fantastic warriors, guys who are even tougher than David, because he's a hero among the military. And David kind of takes responsibility for security wherever he is. When he hears that a, a town is being attacked by the Philistines, he just takes his guys and they go and deal with it. it it's what Saul should be doing, but Saul's not focused on that. Saul, instead of defending Israel, he's focused on killing David. So Saul is out with his guys just chasing David, trying to kill him. 
All right, so that's where we're going to pick the story up here. In 1 Samuel 25, I'm going to read you the whole chapter. Enjoy. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of Maon. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband, the Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men, and he said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Well, David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David then said to his men, Put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. All the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now, think it over and see what you can do. Because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five bushels of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, and a hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good, 
May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He's just like his name. His name is Fool. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, May your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment, for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who's kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she said nothing to him until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. And his heart failed within him and he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail, asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Here is your maidservant. 
ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and, attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they were both his wives. But Saul had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. All right. So let's kind of reconstruct this story, this tragic story. Nabal is a, a very successful man. He's a winner. He's the richest guy around. He's the most powerful guy around. Abigail is a beautiful and intelligent woman. She's the most beautiful woman around. He is the wealthiest and most powerful. It's only logical that they should marry. I'm sure that when Abigail saw Nabal, she saw a knight in shining armor. I'm certain he charmed her, swept her off her feet. They were on the cover of People magazine that week. Okay. It was a fairy tale, storybook wedding. They were the perfect couple. And they got married. But turns out Nabal was not the perfect guy. For one thing, he had a drinking problem. He had a severe drinking problem. And when he drank, he got mean. And when he got mean, nobody except Abigail knew how to handle him. She'd figured it out. She probably took a lot of abuse. She probably took a lot of insult. She knew how to deflect. She knew how to control. The one person who could talk to him when he was drunk was her. Now, David is with his men. He's got 600 miles to feed. He's got kind of this volunteer police force out there doing his best to survive, trying to stay alive, take care of other people. It's now festival time. He's got to look to his supplies. He has looked out for Nabal. He's helped protect Nabal's possessions and his people. And so it's not a protection racket. It's not blackmail. He just comes, offers his greetings, and says, hey, think about giving us something. It's a very reasonable, polite, and kind, and neighborly request. But when David's servants show up to make this request, Nabal apparently has been drinking. Or maybe... He probably drinks most of the time. At this point, it's, his character defects have just taken over his life. He's a jerk. He is a mean guy at this point. And he insults Dave. He insults the servants. It's the kind of treatment that his servants are well aware of. And there are servants of his who are overhearing it, and they cannot believe what they're hearing. Does he know who he's insulting? <laughs> David's got 600 of the toughest men of Israel out there who've been doing us a favor, and now he's insulting them? Well, David's servants go back and tell him, and David, turns out David's got a bit of an anger problem too. Let's not forget, David is capable of murder. David's a good man, but he's not a perfect man. He's got a real temper. And when he hears that he has been insulted by Nabal, he just says, okay, that's it. Put your swords on, boys. We're going to go take care of business. We're going to set an example. This should have been done by somebody a long time ago. I'm going to do it. Meanwhile, 
Nabal's servants. They don't go to Nabal. Nobody goes to Nabal. <laughs> they go to Abigail. Look, <laughs> you cannot believe what he's done, but disaster is about to happen. Believe me, we know what's going to go down, and somebody's got to talk to him. Would you please? Somebody's got to do something. Now, Abigail, as it turns out, Abigail has been mopping up for Nabal for a long time. That's how I kind of read it. She's been taking care of business. She's been keeping the place functional for a long time. He, he ramps and rages and she apologizes for him and accommodates for him and covers for him and administers around his back. So she doesn't even bother going to him. But she's not in the habit of going to him anymore. She is just going to take care of it. So he can rage, he's going to have a party, let him do what he wants. Meanwhile, she just starts issuing orders, okay? She starts emptying the pantry, loading it on donkeys. She sends the servants out quietly so that he doesn't know what's going on. And later she slips out herself, and then she goes to meet David. So she meets David on the way, and David is still, I mean, he's just fuming. He's just given a speech to his guys. It's probably the tenth time he's given the speech on the way down. I am going to kill this guy. And then here comes this beautiful woman on a donkey. And she stops him in the middle of a ravine. And then her true feelings toward her husband just come boiling out. She lost respect for him a long time ago. She doesn't love him anymore. She's putting up with him. She's tired of managing him. And she just says, my husband is an idiot. He's a fool. But then she makes the case. You know what? Your God's anointed, and you don't, you don't want it on your conscience that you went and avenged yourself, took matters into your own hands, and you killed a bunch of people. I know you're mad. You have every right to be mad. You have every right to be mad. But please accept this gift. Take a deep breath. Please don't do it. She's got some experience in diffusing angry people. And it works. This train wasn't going to stop without you. He takes all the presents. He goes back. Abigail comes back. She doesn't tell Nabal what she's done. He's drunk. He's with his friends. She waits. She waits till the next morning when he's sober. And then she hits him with the shame train. She's probably used it before. She just says, hey, wise guy, big man, Mr. King, guess what I did yesterday? I saved your life. I saved everybody's life. You almost got yourself and everybody else killed. That's what you almost did. And the enormity of it just kills Nabal. He just withdraws. His heart becomes like a stone. He won't say a word. Ten days later, he's dead. Well, David hears that Nabal's dead. And now there is a very beautiful and intelligent woman who is suddenly available. Because she is the ultimate trophy wife, Abigail. She's the best-looking woman around. And so he doesn't lose any time either. He quickly sends word, hey, babe, 
marry me. And you know what? She's still looking for the knight in shining armor. She thought she married him the first time. She thought that he was going to save her, and she wound up having to save him, which was just a pain. Now she thinks, I just married the wrong knight. And she says yes immediately. And she has no idea what she's getting herself into. Because while David is a good man, he is not a perfect man. (laughs) She marries him even though she has already seen him at his worst. She knows what he's capable of. She marries him anyway. Well, any thought that this was going to be a fairy tale marriage was, you know, disappeared pretty quickly. First of all, when she gets there, she finds out (laughs) A, his first love, his wife, Michael, who's absolutely loved. Saul has taken and married off to somebody else. He's already married another woman. So she's number two in the house. And uh, you know what? Life doesn't go on too great for Abigail. At one point later in the story, she's kidnapped by the Amalekites, she and her kids. Gets dragged away, and he has to come and save her. And later still, after David dies, her son, which is next in line for the throne, gets passed over in favor of Bathsheba's son. A lot of tragedy there, isn't there? All of us carry this deep sadness, and all of us carry a a loneliness that is never going to be completely overcome and satisfied until, until we meet in the kingdom. Here we can find our greatest acceptance in Christ and in the body of Christ. That's how it's supposed to work. And here, though, while it's good, it's never perfect. Uh, But what we will do, it's amazing what we will do when we're caught in a difficult situation to try to manage and control other people in order to... (laughs) to maintain the fiction of a relationship in a way that makes real relationship impossible. So uh, now to get a little bit personal, Allie and I, as you you may know, know, as different as we are, we had similar childhoods, early childhood traumas, hers deeper than mine. Both of us lost mothers at about the same age, her an adopted mother, me a birth mother. A lot of similar rejection and disappointment through adolescence. We met. It was magical. We understood each other. We, f- we, we could finish each other's sentences. It was literally too good to be true. So that as we got married, and then as the fog lifted, you know, this temporary insanity that God gives us in order to induce us to make extravagant promises to each other, right? As that period fades... It's a trick God plays. Otherwise, we would never marry. We would never marry. Okay? And, you know, and, you know cognitive reality set back in, and I realized I actually married someone uh, from apparently a different species. Uh, right? Yeah. Both of us desperately wanted to hang on to that togetherness. And so what we... So we, we adapted to it in different ways. I would refuse to fight. 
Allie is much more comfortable with conflict than I am. If something's wrong, Allie just would rather deal with it. Let's just say it. Let's get it on the table. Let's talk about it. Let's get it done. That's Allie. Not so much me. You know, for our first couple of years of marriage, she could not possibly, she couldn't get me to argue with her, to face a conflict. I thought that the way to stay together was just not to talk about it. Let's pretend it isn't there. I would then withdraw, pretend, which only made her feel farther away from me. I was so uncomfortable with anger, so afraid of conflict, that I would just not do it. Meanwhile, I was so focused on saving the world and building a huge reputation and making a million dollars and being larger than life that I thought always, almost always, in terms of career and reputation. And uh, my life was very much about me. And if we were going to talk, we were going to wind up talking about me. That's basically how it had to go. And Allie would love to have talked about her, but if the way to be in relationship with me was to talk about me, she'd talk about me. As I got into sex addiction, I began to withdraw emotionally in a way that every addict will. Allie swallowed, really, a lot of that hurt and pain just to maintain whatever relationship she could. She swallowed it in front of the kids in order to hold a family together. She learned to excuse my inexcusable absences, physical absences. I was just always gone, or emotional absences. Occasionally, very diplomatically, she would confront me when we were alone. She never embarrassed me in front of other people. But I would make such an ass of myself. And afterwards, she'd sometimes do her best to try to tell me. Usually, I would just counterattack, be very defensive. Finally, by the grace of God, you know, 20 years in, I get into recovery from my addiction. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was just spe- uh, invited to speak last week, uh, just a couple days ago. I was honored to deliver a keynote address for a group called the International Association of Clinical Sex Addiction Specialists in St. Louis. It was very enlightening to be with this group of therapists. Turns out they were all Christians. It was a Christian group which helped. There were a lot of people there who focused not on the addict but on the partner. And it was interesting to hear them say they've actually stopped using the word codependent. Their feeling is that that word codependency has been used in so many ways and to define so many things that it doesn't really mean anything anymore. And that it can be used to stigmatize and further traumatize the partner of an addict by making him or her responsible for the addict's behavior. And they said, we have to be repentant. We've been using this model that we thought was good. It's quite possible it's done more harm than good. We have to start dealing in a different way. They said, now, Allie and I never went into this program, but they said the program that has been so often used and that many of us have championed have said that for the first two to five years of recovery, the addict has got to go off into this corner and do the work of recovery. Two to five years. Meanwhile, we're going to say that the partner is sicker than the addict. Let's stigmatize the partner a little further. We're going to send her or him to the opposite corner for two to five years of separate work. 
We're going to teach them how to individuate, but not let them be together. And then at the end of two to five years, we'll see if we can get them back together to have a functional relationship. And they said, it isn't working. And this starts to jive with my own experience as I look around. I love recovery. One of the things that really bothers me about recovery, within a lot of the traditional recovery circles I'm aware of, the divorce rate is alarmingly high. Because those partners, they may get healthy individually, but they don't get healthy together in the process. There's this kind of this cynical joke among the recovery people. Sometimes there can actually be this, you know, they say, what's relapse for an Al-Anon? A moment of compassion. Right? <laughs> Before recovery, that marriage had become adversarial. It had become a tug of war or a boxing match. Above the water or below the water line, there was always this competition. Sometimes that competition can continue on into recovery. And they said, we've got to find a better way. And they've been working really to re-engage couples much, much earlier in the recovery process to work together on their relationship, to deal with the trauma together, and to learn how to become emotionally close again. It's very hard to become emotionally close after you've been betrayed. I was heartened to hear that. It also blew up half of what I thought I knew about codependency. Uh, I was grateful that I wasn't here last Sunday to talk to you because I knew a lot more last Sunday than I know today. <laughs> I will tell you, Allie was never comfortable in the Anon groups. And I, I do know that the Anon groups have helped a lot of spouses, partners. For some, it didn't actually jive for Allie. God had a way to pull her through the recovery process in the same way he's pulling me through the recovery process. Here's where I knew we were starting to turn the corner on our mutual codependency. You know, it's funny. All those years Allie was managing me, I had no idea she was managing me. I saw the concessions I was making to her. Allie talks sometimes about this dance that she was very much aware of for 20 years. I never saw the dance. She was very aware of the dance. And the dance as she saw it was, first phase, I'm charming and engaging and friendly and nice. But then I start to drift away and then I start to get mean. And she smiles and she takes it and she puts up with it and she excuses and she manages for just so long and then at some point she just cannot take it anymore and she just shuts the door and she gets mean back. And she noticed that as soon as she did that, man, I'm Mr. Charming again. And I'm charming and nice and I work it and work it and she holds the door shut for as long as she can and then finally she goes, okay, well, maybe this is it. She opens the door again and the cycle starts over. I was not aware of that dance at all. I mean, I was aware that sometimes she got mean and I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and then I was always making these, you know, concessions to get her nice again, right? So I feel like I'm managing her, and in a way I am. And I still don't like conflict. And I'll tell you what, that persisted for me when we got into recovery, because when I got in recovery, although I still did not, and I'm still coming to appreciate the pain that my wife 
has endured as a result of my disease. But I, it started to say, holy crap, what I've done. And the, the, I'm still in this house. It's amazing. I have, no, I have no right to contest anything, right? Ask for anything, say anything, whatever she wants. She's queen for the rest of her life. That's how I felt. And so this kind of codependent thing is still going on, if we're going to use that word, whatever it is. Here's where we kind of knew that we were turning a major corner. And it literally, it's almost 10 years into recovery. We're living in this little house on Adams Street. It's the one we bought when we moved here. It was the only one we could afford when we moved here, mainly because I'd blown a few hundred thousand dollars that nobody knew about. Allie had prayed before we moved here, God, please give me a house. I don't want a lot, but here's what I would like. I would like a fireplace. I would like hardwood floors. I would like a front porch. I'd like a yard. I'd like to be able to walk to church. And here's this house that we have, and it's got wood floors, and it's got fireplace. It's got two fireplaces. It's, it's got a lawn. It's got a front porch. It's got a sidewalk that goes to church until the church moved out of town. But, but <laughs> Right? <laughs> The only problem is, the house is a piece of crap. I mean, structurally, and I'm aware of this, the thing is a mess. It's falling down around our ears. It's beyond structural repair, this house. She makes it look beautiful, and she fills it with antiques. It looks like an antique store. She found her solace there. I'm not going to tell her story. She can tell her story. But let's just say you had to maneuver through our house, right? So. I start saying, you know, honey, we got, we got to get a different house. And every time I bring it up, and I bring it up softly, and she just says, no. This is my house. I mean, <laughs> this is the house I prayed for, is what she said. She didn't say this is my house. This is the house I prayed for. God gave us this house. We're not moving. Fine. So one day, I'm, I'm leaving the house, and it's... It's like a Saturday, I think. And um, she follows me out into the driveway. And she says, let me ask you something. Why can't you stay home? There's no reason for you to leave the house today. Why are you going? And at that point, I kind of knew it was the opportunity to say something that I'd been feeling for a long time but had never said. Because I'd always been afraid of of her and how it would sound and where it would go and I don't like conflict and I don't have the right, you know. And she's a good fighter. Allie is a very good counterpuncher. She doesn't give up easy. So I said, uh, all right, you, sh you really want to know? She said, yeah, why? I said, well, here's why. Uh, this is not our house. It's not my house. This is your house. I don't have a study in this house. I don't have a room. I don't even have a wall. I did have a spot upstairs, and then you took it over as a closet. That's why. And then Allie just got this look on her face, and she just said, You're right. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You are absolutely right. Okay, what do we need to do? I said, Well, we need to get another house. It's going to take a while to empty this one and sell it. Well, how about if I look for a rental, maybe for a year while we figure this out? She said, 
fine, okay, just look for a rental. And I, so I started making phone calls that day. We were over at the neighbors that evening, cooking out out back, and, and I got a phone call from a rental. I got off the phone, I said, okay, we're gonna go look at a house tomorrow, and the neighbor said, what? What's happening? Well, we're, we're gonna go rent a place. The neighbor said, oh no, you can't move. You can't move, we're not gonna let you move. Well, we have to move, sorry. She said, the house on the other side of me is for sale. Well, there's no for sale sign. We don't know it's for sale. There's been tenants in it for a long time. It's the best house on the block. It's the oldest house on the block. It's the best house on the block. It's the house we could never possibly live in. Yeah, the tenants moved out and the owners decided she's got to sell. But she says, my father's the sales agent. We can get you in tonight. We looked at it in the dark. Within 24 hours of that conversation in the driveway, we had a contract on that house. We live in it today. But it was because we'd taken a major step in being able to speak the truth in love and walk in the light together and say, I was, it was a huge step for me to say that. It was a huge step for her to hear it. Rather than anticipating, adapting, managing, pretending, uh, what I'd like to do next week is kind of continue the conversation more along this theme, and I hope you'll come with a story or a thought or a question or an idea, and let's talk about how addiction affects all of us next week, okay? Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.